before we meditate, I'd like to ask you if uh, anyone has any questions about meditation practice or uh, about the Dharma or anything else. Yes? So you don't know how to meditate. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> we better help you out there a little bit if we're going to sit here and meditate for a while. Okay. Meditation is a process of, of calming your mind and learning to be focused and learning to be very aware. So the calming shouldn't lead into drowsiness and things like that. It's usually remain relaxed but very alert and very aware. And so the way that we do this is to, to take a, an object to rest our attention on. And whenever our mind, you'll notice when you do that, that your mind is, is filled with all kinds of other thoughts and things like that. And so in order to calm your mind, whenever you realize that your attention has drifted away from the meditation object, is just to uh, gently bring it back to that object. And what will happen sometimes is that you'll not only drift away from the meditation object, but you'll forget it entirely and your mind might wander, think about this, and then that makes you think about that. So it might go on for a long period of time. But it doesn't matter. What's important is sooner or later you're going to have that moment when you realize that you're not doing what you intended to do. And so that moment is special. Notice how much more aware and fully conscious you are when you come into the present and realize you're not doing what you intended to do. And by comparison with just a few moments earlier when you were lost in some thought and weren't really present and really aware. Because that's very special. So just appreciate that moment and think about how you'd like to be in that kind of uh, completely present awareness all of the time. And then bring your attention back to the meditation object. It doesn't matter how many times you have to do that, but if you keep doing that, your mind will gradually begin to slow down and become calm. So that's basically how to do the practice. Now the meditation object that you're going to use is uh, the, uh, the feelings that are produced by the breath as it moves in and out at the nose. So if you just right now, maybe you'll want to close your eyes. Just, but right now, pay attention to the air as it moves in and out of your nose. And you'll notice that you can feel that movement. So that's what you're going to keep returning your attention to, is those, those sensations of the breath. And the breath is always there, and it always goes on. Now, at some point, you know, you might feel uncomfortable sitting still for a long period of time. And if that happens, uh, try to go as long as you can without moving. And if you're feeling uncomfortable in a way that it keeps drawing your attention away from the sensations of your breath, then you can switch and use that sensation as a meditation object instead. And then if you feel like you need to move to relieve the discomfort, then go ahead. But do it very mindfully with great awareness. So just the idea is to stay physically relaxed. So if you notice any tension in your body, just let go of it and relax. And 
check into your body every now and then and see if there's any tension developing. And so stay very relaxed, but very alert, and, and try to teach your mind to calm down uh, by just keep coming back to the breath. Don't try to stop the thoughts. Don't try to stop anything else. What you want to do is just try not to lose the awareness of the breath. That's, that's just your anchor. You just keep coming back to that. Okay? So hopefully, hopefully you'll have a good experience with this, and maybe we can talk about it again afterwards. Any other questions? Anything else someone would like to talk about? Do you have? No? Yes. I was reading recently about, along the same lines, about using a, med a walking meditation method where you flex or tense certain parts of your muscles and pay attention to your posture as a way to <coughs> meditate. Have you, that, what do you think of that? To flex your muscles while you're meditating? Yeah, continuously, you're as you're walking, doing me walking meditation, you continuously notice your posture. So you make, you notice your shoulders are back. You notice your diaphragm is and those, by doing that, you constantly have these points of noticing that mm -hmm. create the object of meditation. Uh, yes, that is one way of doing walking meditation. Oh, I'll repeat the question. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, yes, that you've heard of a way of, of walking meditation, which is to pay attention to your posture, the different parts of your body as you're walking. And that is one way of doing walking meditation. The idea of walking meditation is to stay in the present moment and to use your body in the process of walking as a, uh, as a focus, uh, as an anchor, but not trying to be exclusively just aware of one thing like you are when you're sitting. And I need to talk about walking meditation too, because after we sit, we're going to do half an hour of walking meditation. So, to meditate while you're walking, best to walk slowly. And uh, as I said, the idea is to remain completely in the present. So if you find yourself thinking about the past or the future or something other than the here and now, then bring yourself back into the present and use as the uh, anchor for your attention. Uh, you could use the body the way that uh, uh, Barbara, is it? Yeah, Barbara, sorry. The way that Barbara <coughs> described or well, the other thing that you can use is the uh, sensations on the soles of your feet. So if you walk slowly and the foot that is moving, put your attention on the sensations of, uh, that are present in that foot as you lift it off the ground and raise it and move it and then place it again. And then when that step is completed, and shift your attention to the other foot, which is in the back now, and pay attention to the sensations there as you lift it and move it and place it. And so use that sensation as the, uh, as the object that you come back to if you find your mind leaving the here and now, leaving the present. But as you walk, you'll also be hearing things, feeling things, seeing things. And uh, that's all right. Just stay, stay in the present and keep coming back to the sensations involved with walking.
There's many different ways of doing walking meditation. So we've described just two out of many here. But what they all have in common is that you're using some sensation as an anchor to keep you in the present. And uh, that you're trying to stay in the present. As you become more skilled at staying in the present, then you can start trying to stay in the present <coughs> silently. You can stop the internal chatter. And then you can start being more and more fully mindful, more and more fully aware of what you are experiencing moment by moment as you walk. Any other questions? Any questions uh, about things other than just meditation practice? What is karma? Okay. That's a very good question. So I'd be happy to explain that. Now, karma is uh, it's a Sanskrit word that means action. And it originated uh, thousands of years ago. And where uh, the Brahmins of ancient India were responsible for uh, performing various rites and rituals in their society. And it was believed that when the rituals were performed properly, that, that this would actually nourish the gods who in turn would make sure that the, that the uh, sun rose and set and that the rains fell and that the seasons progressed and that life continued as it should. And so the idea of the action of performing the ritual properly would, through a sort of supernatural agency, result in uh, everything going on as it should. And then over time, that developed into the idea that it was extended to all of the activities of a person in their lifetime. And in ancient India, there were people who were members of different castes, and there were, some castes were higher than others. And so the idea was that if a person fulfilled their role properly in their life, that uh, uh, and it, it, whatever that role happened to be, if, if a person was a uh, a, a tradesman, if he conducted his trade honestly and, and the best of his ability, or if somebody was a housewife, whether somebody was of a high caste or a low caste, there were all there were the proper ways of behaving and conducting themselves. And the idea is that if you did that, then when you died, you would be reincarnated and reborn into better circumstances. So if you're in a low caste, you might come to be in a high caste. And if you're in a high caste, you might continue to be reborn in a high caste, and maybe to a wealthier family and things like that. This was a long time ago. The Buddha came along when <coughs> these ideas were the, the predominant ideas in, uh, in uh, society at the time. 
And he took this idea, appropriated it, and uh, showed it could be applied in a different way. He said, by karma, I mean intention. And he gave it an entirely ethical and moral meaning that um, what is important about your actions is the intention behind them. And that in addition to the immediate and obvious results of these actions, that uh, the intentions behind those would determine the sorts of experiences that you as an individual had in the future. And so then he went on to explain in much more detail how, uh, how that happens, how that process of how we condition ourselves. If we, uh, if we let ourselves go to uh, engage in lustful and greed-filled activities, then we turn ourselves into a particular kind of person and we'll experience uh, a lot of suffering as a result. Or if we allow ourselves to uh, uh, frequently succumb to impatience and anger uh, and hatred, that we'll turn ourselves into a, a kind of person that reflects that. And that, too, leads to a lot of uh, suffering and un unhappiness. And he pointed out that the things that we, everything that we think, say, and do has consequences on many levels. Uh, the actions you take do have ramifications for the future. They determine how other people are going to treat you. Um, there are consequences. So there are many different kinds of consequences for actions which we know. But he's pointing out that we constantly create ourselves through our intentions that lie behind our actions, and that this is an extremely important thing to be aware of, because the kind of person you have created yourself to be is going to determine the kind of experience that you have in any given situation at any given time. And as we know in the world, that some people, that in, in the same circumstances, some people can be miserable and some can be happy. And that is the fruit of their karma, even though the external circumstances are the same. How they perceive it, how they experience it, how they react to it is totally different. And can't go into it in a short time like this. But actually, the Buddhist teaching goes very deeply into this to, for us to recognize that, that all of our experience and the way that we perceive the world to be and the way that we perceive the people around us to be is a projection of our mind. That really we live in a world that's created by our own minds. And that, and, and so this very same thing I was just talking about actually goes much deeper even than what I've just described to you. Because if the entirety of the world as you experience it is a product of your mind. And if your mind is conditioned by your past karma, then that what this means is, is, is your life and your world and, uh, at the deepest possible level is being determined by karma. So this makes karma much more central and much more important than uh, uh, 
than it even appears when, when you examine it at the most obvious level. It takes a lot of meditation practice uh, and mindful examination of what's happening in your mind and what's happening in your life to realize just how how deeply true this is, that our, reali our reality is completely mind-created. But at the level that I described a few minutes ago, I think anybody can see that, that you make yourself into a kind of person who experiences things in certain ways. But, but then this makes karma, though, when you take it to this deeper level, it makes karma something that cuts much, much deeper than we are likely to realize. And uh, it also makes the consequences of the way that we condition ourselves moment by moment to be absolutely inescapable. Since we are the creator of our reality, we cannot escape the consequences of the kind of person that we make ourselves to be, because that is the mind that does the creating. What the Buddha did that is very important is he took the idea of karma and its results out of some domain of of magic and supernatural. Before that, uh, karma was, uh, well, I mean, even the way it's often understood today is that very simplistic way that somehow there's some supernatural or magical force that is going to determine your destiny based on your karma. And the underlying truth uh, doesn't, I mean, that's hard to explain. Well, who is it that's keeping track of all this? Who's, who's keeping score? And who is it that has so much control over everything that they can make things happen in a certain way, you know? And uh, when the same thing happens to a large group of people, does that mean everybody did exactly the same thing in the past and has the same karma? You know, those things don't make a lot of sense. But the way the Buddha taught karma makes a lot of sense, it makes a lot of common sense. And we can penetrate to a, a very deep level uh, in it as well. It actually is more profound in its consequences than if there were some strange external power that had the ability to keep records on us and meet out uh, uh, results uh, in that kind of way. It is the fact, though, that whatever you experience in any moment is the result of your own past, your own internal, mental, psychological past, whether you realize it or not. So no matter what experience you're having, good or bad, uh, you need to own the fact that, that this is a direct flowering of your past thoughts, words, and deeds, and, and the way that you formed your own mind. And you can't change the past. So what's, what you're experiencing right now, you can't change. Knowing that it comes from your mind doesn't mean that you can magically say, well, oh, well then, I think I'll have my mind create a completely different kind of world, maybe where I'm a lot richer and I have all the things I want and so forth. It doesn't work like that. But if you begin to understand the way that your mind does work, then you realize that what you do in the present the experience you're having may be determined by your past, but your reaction to it and the thoughts and words and actions that you generate in this moment 
are what creates your future. And you can, uh, if the present is unpleasant or, or dissatisfying in some way, you have a choice. You can either make more bad karma in reaction to that, so that in the future you're going to have more unpleasant experiences. Or you can make good karma instead, and you can cancel out the past bad karma, and you can create for yourself a much better kind of future. You're welcome. Anybody else have any comments or thoughts based on that? So it's a very important subject. So. That creating the, the, the better karma, mm -hmm. having the choice to create a better karma uh, for the future, would be practicing those precepts we read, that we read earlier? Would that, would that, be? that would be, uh, that's, that's the way to begin, yes. If you keep the precepts, if you develop virtue, then what that does is it keeps you from making the kind of unwholesome karma that you have been making. Then you can go a little deeper. Well, the, the other thing that you can do is you can start making wholesome karma to replace it. So on those occasions uh, when you might have, uh, when, when there might be uh, some urge to do or say something that would harm someone else, or when you're experiencing a mental state of anger or annoyance or hatred, if you can find a way within yourself to transform that so that your anger becomes understanding and your hatred becomes compassion and your greed becomes generosity uh, and so forth. This, this is, this, then it becomes really powerful. You just, you, you can stop doing the unwholesome things, but then you can not only stop doing the unwholesome things, but change those to more wholesome things. But then there's an even deeper level too. If you start practicing in this way and you're mindful, you can come to realize that all of your unwholesome thoughts and words and actions are rooted in uh, desire of some form or another, or aversion of some form or another, or uh, ignorance, delusion of some form or another. And so you can see that rather than trying to combat these one instant at a time, that if you can work on the underlying uh, uh, craving, on the un underlying desire and aversion and delusion, then this was far more powerfully effective than, than just trying to, to change one, one tendency at a time as it arises. This is where it goes so to like the how does one make that shift? Um, well, it, it, it's as simple as starting to recognize, you know, when you find yourself in an unwholesome mental state or having unwholesome thoughts, to be able to examine yourself mindfully and recognize the origin of that, you know. Where is that coming from? Oh, that's coming from aversion. I can see the aversion that lies beneath that. And then you can focus your attention on the aversion itself. But there is a deeper thing than that, too. Um, the desire and aversion that we experience, we, you know, as human beings, we are innately prone to this. It is what causes us to 
behave in the way we do to acquire things and to seek pleasure. And it's really part of our survival mechanism and to, re uh, to assure reproduction. So it's kind of, it's part of our brain, it's part of our mind right from the beginning. But if, as we grow spiritually, we don't need to be uh, like a, a, a more primitive kind of being who, in order to survive, needs to be driven and controlled by, by these crude uh, instincts and emotions. So that we can, as, as we develop spiritually, we can overcome and transcend these. But what we realize is that <clears throat> when we start looking into it more deeply, is that another thing that we're born with that really uh, desire and aversion themselves are rooted in is uh, this idea of being a separate self. And, and that too, too, that's a, an inborn thing that contributes to our biological survival, that our minds will formulate this belief that we are this separate and abiding self that needs to be protected and cherished and served and and, uh, and and so out of that flows naturally desire and aversion, the, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain and, and uh, uh, the greed for objects, greed for sensual, sensual experiences, um, uh, the desire to avoid or destroy that which creates discomfort or threatens our, our well-being in any way is this self. And this is so much a part of the way our minds work that it's, it's hard to believe that it's an illusion, but it is. It helps sometimes when you can realize that um, the rest of the way you perceive things is also an illusion. <laughs> that we perceive ourselves as one particular kind of thing existing in a world of other things, other things separate and independent from us. And uh, what we can come to realize through combination of meditation and mindful observation is in fact there are no things. There are only processes. And we're only one process among many. And we are totally connected to all of these other processes. That we are a part of a whole, an inseparable part of a whole. And that every, every part of the whole that the mind can single out and distinguish is totally dependent upon every other part and totally affects every other part. So when you come to that level of understanding, the attachment to the view of self falls away. And when the attachment to the view of self falls away, then desire and aversion become. That's the elimination of delusion, by the way. When you start to overcome that delusion, then, then you are able to address desire and aversion in a much more effective way, rather than just trying to combat them one instance at a time when they arise. Relate since there's there's basically nobody home inside and outside there's no nothing controlling. Where does how does that relate to our concept of free will and intention? Well, 
the entity that we are and that the uh, that until you become a fully awakened being you're going to identify the entity that you think you are as being some kind of a self is not rigidly and deterministically determined in how it behaves and how it evolves over time. If it were, if if there were a radical and complete determinism, then you couldn't you couldn't, you know, the process that you are would just have to unfold and there would be absolutely no hope that that process itself could direct itself to evolve in a new and different direction. But that is that is not the case. Uh, if you look at what happens to you as an individual, the working of your own mind, that there are constantly decisions being made, and they're being made as a cumulative result of the past conditioning of the body-mind complex that you are. Um, and that there, uh, that you are a complex entity of many parts. There's no single thing that you can call your mind, and no single thing that you can call yourself, and no single thing that you can call your will. But each decision you make is an outcome of many different past experiences and many different mental processes that have developed as a result of those past experiences. Call them impulses or tendencies. So, when any kind of choice that arises and that is made, and this is constantly happening moment by moment, is basically the outcome of uh, measuring these different impulses and tendencies against each other. For a huge proportion of these, uh, your makeup is such that, you know, the, 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 you, the predominance is such that there's, there's, it's always going to go in one particular way. There's not any sort of doubt. The probability is huge that when this decision, when this choice arises, that you're going to go this way rather than that way. But there are also a tremendous number of circumstances that arise in your life where when these different uh, impulses and tendencies, when they're added together, they come up to a, a probability that is like 50-50 or, or very, very close to that, it's very closely in balance. And so in, in those cases, it's not predetermined. The other thing is that uh, it's not as though in each intention that arises in your mind and, and each act it leads to, that every part of your cumulative past karma <coughs> is participating in this. So something happens and you respond immediately afterwards, or at least you have a reaction you're inclined to say something of a particular kind immediately afterwards. And of the different tendencies and processes that make you up, there's only a small number of them that would have participated in the generation of that intention. 
if you if you have restraint and if you allow a little more time to elapse, there are other tendencies that you have required uh, have acquired which can produce a different intention and a different action if if only you allow the time to uh, for that to occur. Now, allowing the time for that is only one part of the way that that we as uh, as an entity can determine our own evolution. The other is the kinds of tendencies that we accumulate that can affect a particular choice, that can affect a particular intention. So that is by other very easy choices that we make all the time. You can influence by things that you hear and read and influence by your mind's own examination of your experience. Say that I would like my own nature and my life to go in this direction rather than that direction. And that can guide you just to use the example of, of being a person on a spiritual path, that can guide you to become interested in a spiritual path. That can cause you to start associating with different kinds of people. And what they say and do is part of what influences your future decisions. You can attend Dharma talks and everything that you read and see and hear becomes a part of your makeup. And so you can, in all kinds of very gentle, subtle, easy ways, influence the makeup of who and what you are through positive influences, through easy choices. You know, when, when you're at a, something that's like a 50-50 choice of go to a Dharma talk or, or uh, watch porn on the, on the internet, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure if most people would experience that particularly. But, you know, it's, it's very illustrative of the, the kind, different kind of results that come. So if you just imagine that you're at that decision point, that it's, well, should I do this or should I do that? You know? And, and if, it's, if, you, if you're right at that balance point, and if you have the sense that you'd like to be a better person in a better world, then you might choose to go to the Dharma talk. And you build up, you accumulate those experiences. The Buddha said that the spiritual, the path, you know, somebody approached him once and said, uh, good companions and good circumstances, that's part of the spiritual path. Right, boss? And he says, no, no, no. That's the whole of the spiritual path. Associate with, with, with good people. Associate with people that you would like to be like and that have the same interests and directions. Bad companions are going to make you into uh, a person like like the people you associate with. So good companions, wholesome companions, and wholesome circumstances. This is this is the way that you equip your mind with all of these positive influences so that when you come to other uh, more difficult choices, you can introduce enough of a pause and let let them join in the decision making, so that when you have the 
the impulse to perform a kind of habitual, unwholesome action that has been a part of your life for a long time and been reinforced many times, if you restrain yourself long enough to have some of these newly acquired influences play a role, then you can you can change. And each time you succeed in doing that, you make yourself into a different kind of person who's less likely to be inclined to the unwholesome and more likely to be inclined to the wholesome. So to bring that back around to meditation, that's what we're doing every time we bring our attention back to the breath, is practicing that As a matter of fact, skill? we are. If you wanted you know, you, I, I thought years ago, I, I thought of this as uh, a way that a person could understand meditation and karma. How meditation is a way of making a particular kind of karma. You close your eyes and say, I'm going to pay attention to my breath, and it doesn't happen. Well, it's because your mind is conditioned in such a way that you're going to end up thinking about other things instead. Well, that's karma and the results of karma. But if you sit down and you repeatedly, each time your mind is carried away, when that moment comes when you recognize that it's carried away, there you have a choice. You can say, oh, I want to go back to planning my great project. That's more fun than watching my breath. Or, no, I want to learn to do this and, and achieve the kind of results that I see in my new companions that I associate with. Okay? So that's the kind of choice. That's a creating of karma. Whenever, every single time that choice arises, and every time you choose to bring your attention back to the breath, you are creating the karma to be a person whose mind responds to intention. And after a while, the effect of that cumulative karma is you'll be a person who, when they sit down, that, that they have the karma that their mind responds to their intention, but it does, it's not just when they're sitting down. When they're in their daily life, their mind will also respond to intention. And this, this creates a possibility for that mindful awareness, for that discovery of the way things are, and for that ability to shift the way things tend to go. So meditation is a perfect example of, you know, you start out with the karma not to be able to meditate, and you create the karma to be a person who meditates <laughs> successfully. But it applies everything else. You know, you start out as a person who's working as a hitman for the mafia, and you end up being somebody who helps little children. And <laughs> you know. yeah. That's wonderful how you explain karma. I've never heard that before like this. <laughs> but I have a question to karma. Yeah. When when the Buddha talks about um, the intention of karma in this lifetime, so he not he's not talking about the next lifetime is really about now, right? Creating that next okay. moment, the next future moment with the right intentions. Well, it is the same thing. And th this is a this is a, a, a subtle sort of thing. Because remember the Buddha was teaching in a society where everybody believed in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. That when they died that they were a person, an entity, a self, a kind of soul, that would be reincarnated again, and that it would be the same self and person. So as he did so often, 
he appropriated the common idea and subtly shifted it. He said, well, I don't teach reincarnation, but I teach rebirth. All he did was choose different words. And, and so people said to him, rebirth, rebirth, what does this mean? And he says that because he was also teaching that there is no self, and so the question also comes up, if there is no self, then who or what is reborn? And he says, when I say rebirth, I mean that those karmic predispositions are what is reborn. So, the self that you think you are is, it's not something that you're going to lose and be destroyed when you die. It's something that never existed in the first place. It's just a mental formation. It's like an idea or a thought or a memory, and it has no more substance than that. But we are all interconnected. We are part of a whole, even though we can't understand the nature of that. And what is reborn, if you, if you live in a good way, and if you develop a lot of good karma, and that you have developed a good karma is that you have become a, a wholesome person of, of high values and, and a good standard of behavior, then that is what continues on, are those karmic predispositions. So, and so in that regard, by saying, when the Buddha said, what is reborn, and the only thing that is reborn is your karmic predispositions. And you can see that that's the same thing that we're talking about, that the person that you are uh, a year from now is determined by your past experiences. And when you wake up some morning a year from now, you are that kind of person. You know, that's like being born that day. You wake up in the morning, and this is the kind of person you are. And you could look into the past, and you could see how your karma caused you to wake up as that kind of person. And so you can think of rebirth in the same sense. The best thing is not to cling to ideas of rebirth and reincarnation, because if you think of it, you know, your major concern is this life. You probably don't remember anything about your past lives. And so it's very likely that, you know, uh, some, that uh, no future being that, that comes to think and feel the way you do is going to remember having been you in the past. So don't worry about that. Focus on your life. Focus on becoming awakened in this lifetime yourself. But you can take comfort in the fact that all of your uh, karmic predispositions, good and bad, uh, are a part of some whole that you perhaps can't grasp very clearly. And therefore, by overcoming your uh, bad karma and creating good karma, that uh, you're doing something extremely valuable, that the 
net amount of suffering in the future is going to be reduced as a result of that. Yes? I'm wondering, and I don't know if you have time now to talk about it, but I'm, I'm thinking about the nature of the hologram and how all the little pieces are a reflection of the whole thing, as I understand a hologram. Mm -hmm. um, is, this, um, is this a good model for how connected we are and how we relate to everything that is? Uh, is the hologram a good model? Uh, I, I would say that yes, it is. What you have to understand is that anything your conceptual mind comes up with as a model is going to be, it, it's not going to be that which is beyond conceptualization, the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality. It's going to be a model. And, and a model ship that a child makes is not the same thing at all as what it's a model of, right? And so every model, uh, as soon as you examine it just a little bit more closely, begins to fall apart and begins to fail to, to function. So if you keep that in mind, though, then um, a holograph, hologram as a model, or maybe the better word is a hologram as a metaphor mm -hmm. and help us to understand the way absolutely everything is interconnected. So for those of you who are not familiar with, with holographic images, uh, or you may have seen them on your credit card when you twist them in the light, the eagle looks three-dimensional or whatever it is, but that's, that's a very simple and primitive kind of a hologram. Um, if a holographic picture is taken of something, and then when polarized light is shine, shown through that negative, what you see is a three-dimensional image, and you can even you know look at it from different sides and, and, and experience directly its three-dimensionality. Um, which is a technological curiosity and a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the, the holographic displays at uh, Expo 86 in Vancouver. You know, fantastic images that you can walk around. They're just like they're real. You, you feel like you should be able to reach out and touch them, but there's nothing there but the space. It's a very good metaphor. It's a good metaphor in the sense that it looks very real and you reach out and try to touch it and there's nothing but empty space. But it's also a very good metaphor in that if you took the the piece of film that the light is passing through to create this image. And you cut off a little corner of it, and you're shown the same light through the little corner of it, you'd still see the image. The whole image would be there. It's not like you'd have one corner of the image or one piece of it. The whole image is there, except that it's very fuzzy and unclear and, and hard to see. And a bigger piece makes a clearer image. So. The entire image is contained in every part, no matter how how small the part is. So, in that regard, a, a, a holograph 
a hologram is also a good metaphor that we are all uh, interconnected at the level of uh, ultimate truth in such a way that the whole is contained in every part and every part is contained in, uh, in the whole. And whatever images that it produces are entirely empty. <laughs> and another way the metaphor works is that as with a, in a holographic image, as with our ordinary visual experience, it looks slightly different from every different viewpoint. So if reality is a hologram, uh, unless I am in your shoes looking through your eyes, I'm never going to see what you see. We all see this reality from a different point of view. So that's another way in which it's a good metaphor. <laughs>